Hello and welcome to CodyCast, the podcast for discussion, debate and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. I'm Emma and today we've got Christina and Vicky with us. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. Hi and happy new year. <laughs> um, so we thought we'd uh, do a quick podcast this week of things that we've learned on the ward. So shall I kick us off um, to start with? So I thought... Yeah. Well, I'd have a quick chat about the Public Health England new guideline flowchart for suspected UTIs in men and women over the age of 65, um, which has come out recently, and just kind of direct people to have a look, because I think it's quite a useful tool. It's, I think it's primarily for primary care, but if you're working in the community geriatrics or kind of frontline seeing people in walk-in service or kind of A&E who aren't kind of coming into hospital it's it's quite useful it says do not perform urine dipsticks um so we shouldn't be sending urine dips on people over the age of 65 the reason being they become less reliable with increasing age up to half of older adults and, and basically everyone with a catheter will have bacteria present in their bladder without an infection and that's asymptomatic bacteria and Vicky, I think you talked about that on a previous podcast, didn't you? Asymptomatic bacteria. You know, it's not harmful. Yeah, how sort of around 50% yeah, of people Yeah, and can... it's, it's not harmful. It's not causing them any harm. It's not causing an infection mm. and, and therefore antibiotics won't be beneficial and they might cause harm. So um, the dipsticks can be positive even um, in the absence of infection. And also you can get false negative results as well. So... Um, bacteria so non-coliform organisms that cause UTIs like pseudomonas or gram positives won't give you nitrites on a urine dip and they tend to be more common kind of UTI causing bacteria in the elderly than compared to somebody young under the age of 65. So I thought that was a good first point to kind of clarify what we should be doing with dipsticks and then it just kind of leads you through an algorithm about looking for signs of sepsis. So have they got um, kind of uh, signs on their obs of sepsis or have they also got signs of pyelonephritis? So back pain, myalgia, kind of febrile uh, or a temperature below 36, rigors or nausea and vomiting, and then kind of treat as sepsis or pyelonephritis. And if they don't have any of that, then check for all kind of new signs or symptoms of UTI. So have they got dysuria? Or if they don't, look, you need two or more of new frequency or urgency, new incontinence, new delirium, new suprapubic pain, kind of visible hematuria, or if their temperature is kind of one and a half degrees above the patient's normal. Um, although I think that can be quite hard because in hospital you might not know what someone's normal temperature usually is. And then it kind of leads you on to um, a next algorithm about what antibiotics to target UTIs if you don't have any of them then it says you know don't treat for a UTI and actually look for other causes of delirium so kind of using the pinch me model I just thought it was a really it was quite useful and quite pragmatic practical um algorithm I thought anyway and I think it kind of makes it a bit clearer about um, things like dipsticks and also about when we should be thinking about UTIs and what symptoms we should be treating because often we kind of 
in especially in hospital we often probably give people antibiotics for presumed UTIs that actually haven't got many clinical signs or symptoms of a UTI um, mm. and we, we might be missing other um, causes of their symptoms or their delirium and, and not kind of giving them adequate treatment so I think probably a good thing um, if you want to go and check that out is the PHE um, flow chart for over 65 with suspected UTI. Yeah I think that's really useful because I think the point you make is exactly right I think it's very easy to label something a UTI and then forget about other causes and actually what we need to be thinking is what is the cause of this delirium um and it's not the majority of time it's not a UTI it might be you know they might have a UTI at some point down the line but it's most often not um and we need to just make sure we're not missing something so yeah you're right it's good to kind of um if things aren't working they're kind of improving the way you think just kind of re-look at your diagnosis yeah yeah I think that's very true and I think you know it we do need to be challenging things as well so don't yeah yeah exactly as you say don't accept a diagnosis just because it's been written down always challenge it cool so who wants to go next um so I'll go if that's okay so I was just gonna talk a little bit it's just a reminder really um So I saw a patient in clinic today who had a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation made a few months ago and wasn't on anticoagulation. And it just got me thinking, what do we have to think about um, with regards to this? So I just wanted to highlight um, that when we see a patient with atrial fibrillation, we always have to think about their risk of stroke and their risk of issues from anticoagulation. So the two score systems we often use to work that out um, is the CHADS2 VAS score, um, which um, gives us a sort of annual stroke risk from atrial fibrillation. And that incorporates things like congestive heart failure, hypertension, age, diabetes, previous stroke, um, and also sex as well. Um, and the reason we have to look at that is because if your CHADS2 VAS score is zero, your stroke risk is zero in the next year. However, if it's nine, your stroke risk is actually 15%, which is really high. Mm. Um, and actually, one of the really important things to think about, especially with elderly patients, is that the more advanced in age a person gets, the, the higher their stroke risk actual fibrillation. So we shouldn't be discounting these patients just based on age. Um, And also when thinking about falls, um, a lot of the studies that have been done have actually shown that you need to fall about 295 times in one year for the risk of a fall related major bleeding to outweigh the benefit of anticoagulation in reducing the risk of stroke. Um, So actually, unless somebody's falling really frequently, we shouldn't be withholding anticoagulation just because somebody is a falls risk or because we're worried about their balance or their risk of falls. So I just just made me think about that a bit. And and the other scoring system that we use is the HasBled score. So you should create, you should calculate the two alongside each other. Um, And the HasBled score actually looks at the bleeding risk. Um, So we have to do the two side by side. And that actually will tell us the higher risk patients that we may need to think about whether we anticoagulate. And if you work at those two scores, you can get a pretty good idea of those patients that would be appropriate for anticoagulation. Um, And the evidence has shown sort of fairly recently that about 40 percent 
um, of adults who are who should be eligible for anticoagulation are treated. So we're not treating around 50 to 60 percent of patients who are eligible. And that obviously that risk of stroke and debilitating stroke is extremely high. And we just need to make sure that we're working out the calculations first and we're discussing with patients rather than just making the decision not to anticoagulate. And, and the key thing, I think, is actually just empowering the patient to, yes. to have, make that decision if they're able to and speaking to their family about it as well. So, so that's that's all I wanted to say on that, really. It's just a reminder, um, as I had to remind yeah, myself today. Is. Have you noticed where you work, there's a difference between what background you come from, yeah. what specialty, so whether you're a stroke doctor cardiologist or care of the elderly about your thresholds for kind of or the level of risk you'd accept for anticoagulating yeah, yeah. so i think i think geriatricians with a stroke interest seem are very keen on anticoagulating yeah. patients um and i think i think some of it is swayed by what people have seen before so if people have seen somebody fall over and had a major bleed on anticoagulation their view is probably slightly swayed um but I think, you know, it's, it's something that we really need to just be making sure we speak to patients and families about and putting that risk forward and putting because often some people say, well, you know, actually, um, I, I'd hate to have a debilitating stroke. That would be my worst nightmare. So people would go for that. Right. So who's Shall next? I go next? You go next. Yes. Um, so I was going to briefly uh, recap about dolls to the deprivation of liberty safeguards um because the guidance has has changed slightly in the last few years and a few recent cases highlighted that people um aren't quite sure when they should be putting them in and how so the the dolls is part of the mental capacity act which was initiated in 2005 um, it's a way of safeguarding people who don't have capacity in care homes and hospitals to make sure that we aren't restricting their freedom and are acting in their best interest. Um, it's not an overly complicated process, but it applies to a lot more people than you think. Um, so the safeguard is to ensure that the arrangements, whether it's placement or the treatment of the medical problem are in the person's best interest. Um, and that arrangements are reviewed and they're not deprived of their liberty for longer than necessary um, and that we're using the, the least restrictive um, options um, and essentially thinking what, what would the patient have wanted um, when they were capacitated. So um, the kind of people that should have dolls is anyone under continuous supervision and control in a care home and hospital who's not free to leave and the person lacks capacity to consent to stay in these places. So that's actually a huge proportion of, of elderly care wards. And so I think quite often um, if someone isn't actively trying to leave, it, um, they're sometimes not put in, which isn't technically in keeping with the law, as is my understanding of it. Um, the other issue that recently came up in a number of cases at the hospital I work in is that the paperwork is getting filled in by hand and then put in the front of the notes, but not actually sent off to the local authority doles assessor who uh, have a requirement to come and assess the patient and 
check the appropriateness and, and see what they can do within seven days. So that's another thing to think of. Make sure you know in your hospital on the ward how the paperwork gets sent off. I mean, in our hospital, it is reasonably simple. You you fill it in online from the internet and then email it um, to a, a well-documented email address. But I'm not quite sure how how that uh, translates across the region and, and further afield. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it's an area where there's a lot of confusion, isn't it? Have you, and it sounds like you've noticed that in your hospital, I've noticed yeah. places I've worked as well. And I suppose it's, um, you know, it's there to safeguard people, isn't it? So that, exactly, you know, yeah. that they have their capacity checked and that we're not kind of holding people indefinitely in places where there's hospital or care homes you know, who might have capacity and so it's, so it's all formalised. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think especially because when you go to different hospitals, they do it in different ways. It can be really confusing, especially if you're a junior doctor and you're asked to fill in the forms because it can be quite intimidating filling in kind of those legal documents, can it? Yeah, and they're quite lengthy, some, some, some parts of it. And especially if you have been asked to do it by someone else and you don't feel you quite have a grip on what you're putting in there. Um, but the mental health liaison team can, can certainly assist with, with that sort of information as well. Yeah, and some places I've worked, they've actually got a dolls assessor who kind of come and does the paperwork. Yeah, all right, that's good. Yeah, and I suppose as well the, inter- the important thing is to remember that what if your patient does regain capacity, you've got to revoke it. Yeah, yeah. We had a patient recently who was under a dolls for delirium, and as that settled, he regained his capacity, could make decisions, and therefore, you know, we had to make sure that we revoked that dolls. Um, yeah, because you know that you could over, kind of that could be an oversight, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and I think it's always important that the the MDT bears in mind that we want the least restrictive option for the patient. You know, if the, if when capacitated, they would have wanted to go home. What can we do to facilitate this? Um, you know, if at all possible, in the safest way. But it's sometimes uh, easier said than done, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think you're right. If we, if you try and keep that in your foremost mind about what's in the mm-hmm. best interest, then everything you're doing should kind of even if you don't achieve it or circumstances overtake you and mm. you know still aiming for that for what the kind yeah. of yeah no that's a good point um so I think finally I just have a few things that I've learned from my week on call and um, just kind of some tips so the first one is mainly about actually infections and antibiotics I seem to be stuck on that this podcast <laughs> but I was kind of thinking about when you when I'm clerking people who've come through from A&E with infections and how it's really important to try and narrow down where you think the infection's coming from um, mm-hmm. in order to give a narrow spectrum antibiotic rather than kind of hitting everyone with a intravenous broad spectrum and to think, you know, do they need intravenous or, or can are they well enough to have oral antibiotics? And I suppose it's really difficult when you're an A&E seeing people quickly and you've got to make a decision and especially with the uh, this you don't have all the information and with the sepsis kind of being so high in the press and kind of on our minds you know you, you want to treat safely and I think that's perfectly reasonable and you might not have all the investigations back 
But I think when they kind of come around to medicine, you have a bit more time. You might have all the blood tests. You might have the x-rays back. Um, and it's kind of a time to re-examine and reassess the history. Yeah, something um, might have evolved and come yeah. to light a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Or you might have the family there then who say, oh, actually, they've been coughing up some green phlegm. Um, and it's important to try and, if we can, give narrow spectrum antibiotics to mm-hmm. avoid you know, kind of multi-resistant organisms, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, you know, if you are, if someone's septic and they need a broad spectrum, you're not sure where it's come from, you know, especially when you first see them in a and I think that's perfectly reasonable to, to give it to them. But I think it's important that if we are kind of hitting people with, you know, the IV tests and that we do blood cultures on them. Yeah. Because especially when they're elderly, they might not mount a temperature response. And especially if we don't know where it's coming from, it's really useful to get a set of blood cultures off before we give them kind of the Domestos antibiotic. Um, so that's one thing I was thinking about this week. And I suppose the other thing I was think just thought about when we were talking about challenging diagnoses and re-examining kind of our mm-hmm. diagnosis is we've had a patient on the ward recently who came in and had a long-term catheter and had some raised inflammatory markers was delirious but had been complaining of a bit of back pain and was initially treated for a urinary tract infection and and grew something from his catheter urine specimen Mm. and then kind of during his admission he was a little bit chesty at one point and then got treated for a lower respiratory tract infection and then you know his inflammatory markers never really normalized and he mm. still had a bit of back pain. And then the decision was taken, oh, actually, could this be something else? And he ended up having some spinal imaging and he actually turned out to have discitis. Mm. Probably what he actually presented with. And, you know, he has had some antibiotics, but we've not treated his discitis. No, not not the focus to the correct antibiotic yeah, for exactly. the likely organism. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it was really interesting to kind of, just a good reminding point that if people aren't progressing the way you think they should be or they're not improving on the antibiotics for the infection that you've presumed it to be just to go back to the start sometimes and Mm -hmm. re-examine everything do cultures you know if they're well enough stop their antibiotics because you've got them in a safe place you can monitor them re-culture everything um off antibiotics and to try and kind of get a handle on what's going on and and get a revised diagnosis and it was just yeah just an interesting uh, patient that I saw this week Mm. yeah I think Uh, that's a good one to pull out your sleeve Uh, could it be discitis the kind of the lingering CRP the patient that's not getting better maybe still febrile and the the kind of um, the more second line investigations are sometimes at an MRI spine or an echo, um, especially if the blood cultures have grown staph aureus or something. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, what I wasn't, um, I didn't really appreciate as well is that kind of the more elderly you get or if you have things like long-term catheters, you know, it might not be the usual staph aureus that you grow. Mm, um, yeah. Um. Great. Well, thank you so much. for Very interesting. I think we lost Vicky. <laughs> we lost Vicky. Yeah, we lost Vicky. Her phone uh, died of battery. So we've, oh, had to, okay. we've had to carry on without her. <laughs> we have carried on without her. We've been stoic. Yeah.
But um, yeah, so thanks so much, Christina, for sticking till the end. <laughs> um, and Here's till every- next time. <laughs> yeah. And um, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and the Codycast is available on iTunes and at the website www.aeme.org.uk. And if you want to leave any feedback or any of your top tips, we'd love to hear them. And you can tweet us at elderlymeded. So thank you so much. <laughs>